I mean, part of the work I think that's happening in states is to encourage more partnerships between employers and community and technical, technical colleges. And that's, I think, a great place where employers can make more investments, right? They have a lot to gain from it. To put a little effort and even resources like money into, you know, if there's particular equipment they need, it doesn't exist at the area community college and it isn't in the state budget to purchase that, that's something that employers could work with to actually, you know, contribute to that. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. Hi, welcome back. This is Christina, your Future of Work co-host. And today, Salvatrice Kumo sits down with Carolyn Heinrich, a Patricia and Rhodes Hart Professor of Public Policy, Education, and Economics at Vanderbilt University. And she shares with us details about her project, Tennessee Post-Secondary Evaluation and Analysis Research Lab, also known as TN Pearl, which focuses on research to help guide higher education policymaking, as well as other topics like how businesses can partner with education to get a mutual benefited result by way of investment, and some input on the current state of the digital divide. Here's Salvatrice Kumo with Carolyn Heinrich. Welcome back. We're here with Professor Caroline Heinrich from Vanderbilt University. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us here today. Talking a little bit about your role there at Vanderbilt University, could you share with them a little bit about what you do there? Sure. I'm a professor of public policy, education, economics, and I have a affiliation health policy as well. I, so I am also the department chair in our Department of Leadership Policy and Organizations, which is in the Peabody College of Education and Human Development. Um, mm-hmm. We're a very interdisciplinary department and um, you know, my own disciplinary training, I think, is primarily in economics, but I collaborate across a range of, of different areas. And so I have colleagues from own university that I collaborate with in research. And of course, I I teach as a professor and, as I mentioned, lead the department. Can you speak a little bit more about the work that's being done there and why it's important? Any specific research that you're working on or things that we need to know about? Well, I have a lot of different research projects. and What's I'm on the boilerplate sure. right now? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess one of the things I'll just describe to you is I do a lot of my research and practice, what we call research practice partnerships, so working with government agencies. So, for example, I work with the Tennessee Higher Education Commission 
and several other state agencies like Economic and Community Development and our uh, Department of Labor and Workforce Development. The governor's Office on, uh, on and Tennessee Board of Regents on a, a partnership called the Tennessee Post-Secondary Research Evaluation Analysis Lab, which we call TenPearl for short. And mm-hmm. so in that particular project, we study a suite of initiatives in the state called Drive to 55, where they're trying to increase college completion to an average of 55%. So have a whole host of projects within that kind of umbrella partnership. And then another larger scale partnership I have is part of the Policies for Action Research Hub at Vanderbilt University that I co-lead with my colleague, Melinda Button, who's a chair in the Department of Health Policy. And there we work with our State Department of Education and Department of Health and TenCare, our public Medicaid agency. We're linking children's education health data there to study particularly vulnerable populations of children in the state and look at their education health trajectories over time and help develop policies to address um, the needs of those children. Yeah, and those are some of the, those are like two of the bigger research practice partnerships. And I have a, a long time running partnership with the, I guess you'd call it just Milwaukee Public Schools, the school district in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we've been studying digital learning there and also study that in Dallas Independent School District. We, we're, we're wrapping up that project. Uh, we just had a book that we completed and released, and we've been releasing a lot of journal articles from that research. That research is, is kind of winding down. But those are just a, that's a flavor of some of my bigger projects right now. Thank you. Well, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the Tennessee Post-Secondary Evaluation and Analysis Research Lab. Tian Pearl, is that what you, is that mm-hmm. how you pronounced yeah. it, right? Yeah, we call it Ten Pearl, yep. Ten Pearl, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, it focuses on the, what you just mentioned, right? Research to help guide higher education policymaking. As a community college, how do you see us and other universities playing a greater role to support the students as we look at, as the entire country really looks at, you know, this rebound from the current pandemic and the, you know, difficult situation that we're in right now? I mean, this is uh, obviously, as you mentioned, the pandemic has has you know, hit a lot of all areas of education in terms of thinking about how we how we do things. Um, you know, Tennessee has been at the has been one of the states kind of at the forefront because we have a program called the Tennessee Promise, which is um, directed at people who are coming out of high school and entering community college, and the idea is to give them a chance to have their costs fully covered. So they, you know, they apply for aid and other things like that. And then as long as they meet certain, you know, kind of minor obligations of the scholarship, they can get their, the state will pay anything that's uncovered so that they can um, attend community college for free mm-hmm. uh, for two years. And so that's one particular program that Tennessee has run out. And what's kind of unique about Tennessee, it also has a mentorship um, component to it. And all mm-hmm. the mentors for that program are volunteer. And so literally they recruit about almost 10,000 mentors, volunteer mentors from people in Tennessee to work with, you know, 60, roughly 60,000 students a year who are heading off to college from in Tennessee. And so Where are these um, mentors I, from, are they just from the community? Yeah, from all over. So I'm, I'm, I'm a mentor. Some of my graduate students are mentors. Mm. People in the community can be mentors. Um, you sign up, you make commitments, you get training, you get a group of, of mentees. I, this is my third year and I'm really starting again another year. You get a, a group of mentees and then you, you, you know, 
encourage them, you meet with them, you help them through the steps of the, you make sure they're following through on their obligations to get the promised scholarship and also, you know, looking at their carefully considering their options. So it helps them to give advice. So for example, you know, if you're from a first, if you're a first generation college student, you may not have family who have experience with things like the financial aid process and the, you know, the things, steps you need to do to prepare yourself to get started in college. So um, those are things the mentors do. So that's actually one way that the community kind of participates in helping make that Promise Scholarship successful. Are there, are there community partners? Do employers get involved in any, you know, with, uh, granted, not, not just the mentoring part, but partnerships and providing either wraparound services or other kinds of service, services to support the student with the Tennessee Promise? So the the state actually has two programs that just rolled out in like the last year, this is the second year of them, where they're adding some additional services. They're piloting in Nashville and Knoxville, our two biggest cities and where a lot of students are. And those are to provide some of those wraparound services like uh, resources for transportation, books, uh, and things like that. That's actually something that we are in the middle right now of developing the, the research instrumentation to study the effects of that program. In terms of the private sector partnerships with the state, they mostly are occurring through, for example, there's a separate program that helps employers to work with community colleges to make sure that the students are being trained for the occupations that are, you know, most in abundance or where there's need for, for skills there. So yeah, that is, that is something that is, I guess, an ongoing project because we are, we're just getting that off the ground. And of course the pandemic has kind of changed the number of, of students who are, who are in need of those services. Right. And I'm wondering too, I mean, the flip side of that, of 10 Pearl, you know, really looking at transfer, when I think about the research, what would you say, or within your research findings, were you able to find, you know, programs that you feel we should be implementing to increase the percentage of students transferring to four-year university? You know, for example, PCC does an amazing job at, at our transfer rate to four-year universities. And that, you know, that took that took some time and it took a lot of diligent work and lots of partnerships with the universities, but I'm wondering within your research if there's other programming that you feel could complement this work in increasing our numbers for transfers. So that's something, you know, that has been studied within the, the our 10 Pearl partnership. I'm not the primary, I guess that we have many projects and I'm not the main person working on that project, but we have been studying, one of the things we've been studying is, is you know, the nature of those transfers. People think that all transfers are from two-year to four-year, but transfers happen the other direction too, as well as two-year to two-year. And so when you're trying mm-hmm. to ease the the problems associated with, you know, dropouts associated with transfers where people aim to transfer, but then don't complete it and then don't go on to complete the intended, you know, education they, they, they sought to, you know, so there are, are what we call articulation agreements, right? About like how many credits transfer. So that's an area of research that, you know, we currently have underway. But like I said, I'm not the primary person working on that. So I can't, I don't have findings to share with you today. (laughs) It's quite all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about really your diverse background in education, economics and workforce development. I mean, that's a, that's a, beautiful melody of ingredients, <laughs> you know, and um, specifically around 
around preparing the students for the workforce. I'd like to ask you, you know, what needs have you been able to identify in industry? And I know that you said this is really kind of in the early phase of development with the project, but what, what roles can community colleges play in preparing students to fulfill those needs? And how do you see technical vocational programs fitting into the mix? Well, I think we, I think some time ago figured out that the college for all approach is, is not the best approach, right? Where you prepare everybody right. for going to college and especially four-year college. Um, and I think there was a recognition that we neglected vocational technical training. Um, I think not only in Tennessee, but in other states, um, like I previously was in Texas and worked with the Texas Workforce Commissioner on that, on those efforts. And I mean, part of that involves also, though, coordinating with employers and understanding the employers' needs because, you know, the employers um, sometimes complain, well, the, 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 you know, equipment and the type of teaching at the, at the community or technical colleges is out of date and doesn't, you know, for example, we need people fixing computers on, on assembly lines, um, not just learning basic electricity. And so, I mean, part of the work I think that's happening in states is to encourage more partnerships between employers and community and technical, technical colleges. And that's, I think, a great place where employers can make more investments, right? They have a lot to gain from it. To gain from it, they have well-trained workers. And so it makes sense for them to put a little effort and even resources like money into, you know, if there's particular equipment they need and that's not existing doesn't exist at the you know area community college and it isn't in the state budget to purchase that that's something that employers could work with to actually you know contribute to that so especially what what we're facing now with us being in a pandemic and students feeling now more than ever that digital divide i mean employers can potentially help with some of that as well not only for the you know technical equipment for that particular occupation or that particular industry, but also having a vested interest, I think, in my humble in my humble opinion, having a vested interest really in the student's success all the way around, you know, not just for a very specific vocational or technical skill. Which leads me to really think about for our faculty members that are listening out there who are faced with significant challenges with some of their students not having access. Can you share a little bit about your experiences and what you've noticed around that or any kind of best practices, tips that you can give in engaging students in this digital learning environment? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as you know, I've studied this primarily at the K to 12, 12 level, and that's what all the research I've been doing kind of in the last you know, six yes. years in that area has been on. But you know, certainly our lessons to take from that to our, our current circumstances where our all education has temporarily, a lot of it has moved online at all levels. And so I think, I mean, one of the things that we, we saw happen over time was there's some federal programs called, you know, federal E-rate program that have improved, for example, broadband access and made stronger internet connections in schools. And that's been great. We, we really saw in our K-12 research that, you know, when Technology-based lessons got disrupted by, you know, poor internet connections. Sometimes it was like a, you know, heavy storm come by that would take away the connection in the school. You know, there was a lot of the loss of learning was was real, and we were able to document empirically how that loss of learning translated into lower test scores and things like that. However, you know, we saw over time with those federal investments. So I think, you know, by recent years. 
99% of schools had had faster broadband access. And so we were actually able to see the difference. We weren't seeing those disruptions anymore to in-classroom lessons during our kind of our classroom observations and other data we're using to look at that. But of course, what happens in the pandemic is suddenly everybody shifts online and it's not online at the school building, it's online in their homes. And we know that we don't have that same kind of equity now and access to broadband when it moves to, to people's homes. And so, you know, students that don't have that, you know, so I think some campuses have tried to make provisions for students who, you know, needed to be on campus. Um, they don't have the resources for learning at home. It's a little harder for school districts to do that because, you know, there's so many students. And so it's really been a challenge. I think everybody is quite concerned that, you know, there are going to be consequences in terms of um, equity and outcomes and in, in, in access as, as long as this pandemic, you know, continues on. And so it's it's definitely, you know, created challenges that we, we had done a fairly good job of, of overcoming um, and kind of, you know, made them more ubiquitous because like you said it's now we, you know, we, we worry about those students who who don't have the resources at home to have a strong, you know, just to give you an example, I'm teaching a class right now, you know, of course in higher ed, and half of my students could not get here because they're international and they're in countries where they weren't allowed to travel here. Hmm. And so, you know, I have a student in uh, Karachi who connects in and she, you know, unfortunately she says, I, I'm going to keep my camera off because if I put my camera, the video on, I won't have strong enough connection to stay connected to the class. And so right. that's I've certainly that. a disadvantage for her. Her fellow students can't see her medication. She puts it on when she talks. And then it's also the case that I had adjusted my teaching time where I'm teaching at night, six to nine, so that for the students who are, you know, you know, hours, you know, so many hours difference from us, it's a little bit more reasonable, but there's the, the range of time zones I had to accommodate, you know, it's not perfect for anybody. And so these are just some of the things that we've had to do. So have you found one particular educational digital tool or, or, or best practice that you feel that you've, you know, that you'd want to share? I think that the challenge has been not so much, you know, do the tools have capabilities? I mean, that the tool designers say, oh, they're just full of all these wonderful things that they can do for learning. The problem is, is that we haven't invested enough. And this is, I think, is true at the higher level and at the K-12 level in instructor capacities for unleashing those tools, right? And so we even at our university, they upgraded classroom technologies, but no one ever came to demonstrate to you exactly how those technologies... That wasn't, it wasn't because people didn't care. It's because context of the pandemic, they were scrambling to get as many classrooms as ready as possible. And, you know, you could go online and watch some tutorials, but it's a whole different thing when you get in the classroom and suddenly what looked easy online. And now that you have students with their computers and you have conflicting sound and speakers and you have half the student, you know, we had to all join online so that our students who have to join online can be connected with us, but students speaking in the classroom while logged into Zoom through their masks. It's a whole different story. So it's, I think, no one had the opportunity to get that kind of skill acquisition. And that's just generally been the case with digital tools across the board, K-12 or higher ed. You know, I think that the purchasing the tools has become cheap. So a lot of school districts and universities do it. That's the easy part of it. Getting the tools into the learning spaces. The harder part is 
making sure that everybody has the capacity to use them, both students and teachers, and f- to fully unleash what they can do. And I think the other thing that often happens too is, you know, these things are made with like kind of the average student in mind. And so when you have students, especially in the K to 12 schools, right, who may be at different learning levels, even within the same grade level, they don't always work equally well. And then it puts extra stress and pressure on the teacher to make accommodations and to also understand how those accommodations can be made. Daily efforts, integration, as well as the, the kind of support that we try to provide, you know, generally in, in educational institutions for, for using technology with instruction. There's definitely lessons learned from this very quick transition from what we were accustomed to So what it really sounds like to me is that we need to invest more time in also some professional development and really not only just to your point, not only just having access to the tools, but doing extensive learnings around it and ensuring that we are well prepared, not only because we were forced to, I mean, again, lesson learned, we were forced to. So now we, as I believe that in higher education or any educational institution, that we really have to change our way of, you know, approaches to situations and scenarios and being prepared for the worst case scenario and and training our faculty and our staff to adapt. Um, I think that's super important. Part of this podcast too, you know, we have students who are listening. So for the student who is listening and who is listening to you as a professor there at Vanderbilt University, I want to spend a little bit of time really kind of sharing your journey. What led you to become a professor and specifically what led you to know that this is your field of interest? What moment, when did that happen? That's a good question. I don't think there was any one moment. I, I, you know, went from, I studied economics and international relations as an undergraduate, and then I decided to do a master's degree in public policy because I was very interested mostly in the applications of, you know, disciplinary training to how do we improve the world and policymaking is one important part of it that I, I particularly had an interest in. And uh, so I went to the University of Chicago for that master's degree, and it was when I started engaging in, you know, in my graduate coursework there that I became more interested in in research as a means to also better understanding how we could improve policy. And so that led to me to do a PhD in public policy, and it also I think influences how I conduct my research, which is not the same, you know, mm-hmm. as everybody knows. So I guess like I that I, I do a lot of work in collaboration with people who are in government roles and policymaking roles and look for the opportunities to, you know, inject research evidence into the policy debates, into program decision-making. And sometimes you get, you get those great opportunities. Like we were, um, I mentioned to you the project we're doing with the state where we're linking children's health and education data. And we were also conducting interviews across the state of Tennessee. And when it was revealed that Tennessee had these unspent TANF funds, the most in the nation, and suddenly the government, the state government, was under pressure to to say, "Oh, we need to to do something with these. We shouldn't be just turning them back to the federal government because there is a lot of need in our state, and we do have higher than average poverty, child poverty rates." And so, we quickly we were in the middle of a of a partner meeting, and we we followed that up with a 
a memo with very specific set of uh, recommendations for the use of the, those funds that came directly out of our research, both the research we've done in the field, talking to people across the state, as well as our you know, research that we were able to do linking health, Children's Health and Education Day and looking at where resources were going relative to children's needs. So that's just one example of, you know, the kind of research I do. And that's why I, I motivate, I'm motivated to do it. And I like my job. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. And, and, and for the aspiring student who's looking to do just that, who's interested in public policy, who's interested in research, who's interested in making significant economic changes or socioeconomic changes or any kind of really changes within our systems, what advice would you give a student right now to help them either be more competitive in the marketplace or, or what advice would you give them to kind of navigate this world that you're in? Yeah. So, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, and I tell my own children this as well as, you know, students, you know, these days, the, the nature of our workplaces, you work very hard in whatever you do. We, you know, the American society has, we, we work long hours. We, um, it's, it's the nature of our, of our culture in some sense. But, I mean, so you have to be passionate about what you want to do. And I think certainly, for example, going into the academy, um, you know, universities, uh, you, you kind of defined in some ways your, your interests in, and if you're passionate about that and enjoy doing the research, enjoy working, you know, with people and, of course, enjoy teaching and things like that as well, that's great because, you know, you will work really, really hard and and it's, it's people don't necessarily realize it's an extremely competitive field. It's competitive to get research grants. You're constantly writing proposals. Your, your kind of accomplishments are always public, like on your, your webpage and, and your, you know, publications and all those things that yep. go into your review and whether you're promoted and, and stuff like that. So it's a pretty intense occupation, but if you really like what you're doing and you found your niche in that, I think it can still be enjoyable despite those stressors. And so I think, I mean, I mostly suggest to people, you know, make sure you, you pursue your passions. And I think it's, I think a lot of ways the workplace has changed these days is many of us will, you know, not do just one thing all our lives and we'll, you know, look to use our talents in different ways. And there are, so think about that when you're considering degree options, right? Um, for example, if you train to be a physical therapist, if you start doing that for a while and decide it's not for you, you probably have to fully retrain, right? To uh, go to an occupation. But there are, you know, for example, like the master's in public policy I did where you get a set of analytic tools and understand policy analysis and you get do a range of different things that can prepare you for a lot of different careers. Um, and so I think that's just something to keep in mind when you're thinking about your future and what you want to do. And so along that same theme of passion, what's next for you? What are you most curious about and what's next on your agenda? Well, I think, you know, one of the things I'm working on right now is, is we are concerned about the kids who've been out of school because of the pandemic and how it's affecting yes. not just their cognitive academics. types, mm -hmm. yeah, the academics, but particularly their mental health. And, you know, for uh, students who live in rural areas or low-income families, um, there are a lot of resources that they get through the schools um, that they may not have had access to in the same way during the pandemic. I know a lot of teachers and support staff were making an effort to reach out to students, but it's really much harder to do than when if the student's coming to you every day in school, you can check in on them, you're making sure they're getting their therapy or whatever they need. And so I think we're very concerned that um, post-pandemic, 
there's going to be, you know, much greater need. And so part of what we're talking about right now is working on ways we can identify where those needs are going to be greatest and make sure that there are strategies in place to get those resources to, to those students who most need that kind of help. That sounds wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing your time here with us. I know sure. that you are a very quite busy woman and, and just to share this <laughs> moment with us is very helpful. So thank you so much, Carolyn. Sure. It's a pleasure and I'm happy to, to share experiences. I know that that's a great thing that you're doing on behalf of students and other, other educators. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.